0: Good morning Disciples Church, my name is Art Laramie and I am privileged to be able to read the scripture for today, 1 John 5, 1-5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments.
1: Well, welcome to Disciples Church. It's so good to see you, good to be with you. My name is Jonathan, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter five. 1 John chapter five. Well, recently I was having a conversation with my wife. We were talking about movies, and I can't exactly remember how we got onto the topic. Um, I think, if memory serves, the way that it had started was I was talking about how many movie quotes there are that are often either misquoted or misattributed to various movies. And the example that I had used is kind of a classic one. It comes from the movie Casablanca, uh, where in that movie, often people think that the line, is, the line that Humphrey Bogart says is, play it again, Sam. And if you've ever actually watched Casablanca, and we don't have time to go over the the whole plot of the movie this morning, but if you've ever actually watched the movie Casablanca, you may know that the actual line that Humphrey Bogart says in that movie is, play it, Sam, play as time goes by. And I had made this reference to my wife and talked to her about it, and through the course of conversation, she admitted that she'd never actually seen Casablanca. Which opened up a whole, a whole nother conversation of movies that I consider great and classic and movies that everyone ought to have already seen that she had never watched. And it also got me thinking uh, about the uh, movies, the maybe the most famous movie quotes that are often mistributed. And so this. These brief couple uh, quotes that I'm going to mention this morning are all from movies that my wife has not seen, that she should have seen, and contain quotes that are often misattributed. So this is partially to put my wife on blast and to get her to watch some of these movies with me. But one of the quotes comes from the movie Dirty Harry, where people often attribute the line to Clint Eastwood as saying, do you feel lucky, punk? Or are you feeling lucky, punk? Where the line actually is, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do ya, punk? Or maybe my favorite, perhaps the granddaddy of them all, the movie Empire Strikes Back, and yes, this is the second time that Empire has been, Empire has been referenced in the course of three weeks. I would apologize, but I don't feel like I have anything to apologize about. Where people attribute the line to Darth Vader as saying, Luke, I am your father, when the actual line is, Dave? No. No, I am your father, right? And here's why I mention all of that. First, to let you know that these are movies you should have already seen so that you understand these references. But second, to show that there are things which, over the course of time, kind of seep into our mindset, they seep into our subconscious, and our, our misunderstandings or our misattributions begin to supersede reality. Now, those are just movie quotes, so the price of a mistake regarding those quotes is at the very most you're probably going to get called up by your husband on a Sunday morning. but, But what happens when we actually have taken presuppositions around serious things that actually begin to affect true spiritual realities in our life? E. Randolph Richards in his book Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes makes this statement. He says, the misreading of scripture arises from combining our individualism with a more subtle, deeply hidden, and deeply rooted aspect of our Western worldview. Namely, that we still think the universe centers around us. When we read scripture, what is it that actually motivates our reading? For a lot of people, as I have conversations with them about what their devotional life looks like or what their scripture reading looks like, they have a tendency to view everything through the lens of how does this pertain to me? And there is a sense, certainly, in which the Bible has very practical and real applications to our life. But the first thing that we ought to look for whenever we read scripture is, what does this reveal about who God is? What does this reveal about the depth of truth, the reality of who our God is, his character, his nature, what it is that makes him who he is, and ultimately then how he relates to us. And if we read scripture through any lens other than that, we're going to have a misapprehension, a misunderstanding of what it is that the Bible is actually teaching us. And as we come to this text this morning in 1 John chapter 5, looking at these first five verses, what we discover is that there's an undercurrent, a a misapprehension that people have about what's actually being said, particularly in verse 1, that is worth calling out and addressing as John continues to explain to us how it is that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we belong to God because the whole purpose of the writing of this epistle is to ensure the believer that they belong to Christ. He doesn't want us to wonder. He doesn't want us to live in constant doubt and question as to whether or not we belong to God. He wants us to know with absolute certainty And so the themes that are mentioned this morning are going to be very repetitive of the themes that we've talked about since we began this book, because that's how this book is written. But each time that John repeats these same ideas, he puts a slightly different twist or a slightly different emphasis on them. And so read with me, if you would, beginning in verse one of chapter five. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, what John says here is fundamental to the Christian faith, and for anybody who grew up within Orthodox Christianity, kind of whatever whatever example or whatever disposition of, of, of Orthodox Christianity you were exposed to, what John says here is not an unusual idea. But this is certainly one of those texts that to steal the line from the author I referenced earlier, we tend to view through Western eyes. There is a spirit, a, a, a common understanding that Christians take into their reading of texts like this that tends to inform our assumptions about what it is that John is saying here. And certainly the idea that John is getting at is that a Christian's confidence in his new life that's been given by Christ is first rooted in his belief that Jesus is in fact the Christ which if you remember the whole of the controversy that was happening at this church in Asia Minor, that was the the whole crux of the debate was, who is Jesus? The self-proclaimed Gnostic Christians, these people who claimed Christianity but claimed on top of it an additional knowledge, a spirit-given insight beyond Scripture and beyond what Jesus provided through the Holy Spirit, these people who claimed this particular knowledge said that Jesus was not in fact the Messiah. That the Messiah was a spirit being that descended on Jesus because he was such a good man, and that that same Messiah spirit left Jesus prior to his crucifixion. They took a very strange and unusual view of who Jesus is, and it informed everything about what they believed about Jesus Christ. But what John is going to say here is that the very first thing that you need to know about Jesus is that he is the Christ that he is the Messiah, that he is God incarnate, the promised and anointed savior of humanity who fulfilled all of the demands of the law absolutely perfectly from beginning to end. That these 600 plus commandments that are given in the Old Testament met their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That he left nothing undone that needed to be done, nor did he violate any of the laws of scripture. And because he did that, he was killed by the religious class. He suffered and died on the cross that God incarnate in human flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was murdered at the hands of the very people he came to save and that then he rose from the dead after three days. But this is one of those texts where we tend to carry in our presuppositions and lay them on top of what it actually says. And here's what I mean. Our tendency is to think that we are the active agent in our own salvation that even to the extent that we believe in the work of Jesus Christ, even to the the extent that we assent to the knowledge that Jesus did all of these things for us, we assume that what actually initiates the power and the effect of salvation in our lives is us choosing to believe in him. So we view Jesus as vital to our salvation, yes, as Orthodox Christians, and we view Jesus' work as perfect and sufficient, yes, but we tend to believe at least if we've grown up in a very common perspective that many Christians grow up in in the United States, we tend to believe that ultimately we are the active agent, that we are choosing, and that in our choosing God, he then receives us and makes us part of his family. In other words, we tend to believe that the reason we've been born of God is because of our belief. When in actuality, what John is saying is that the reason we are able to believe to begin with is because we've been born of God. In other words, it's an order, it's a matter of order. We tend to get things switched around in our mind. And what John wants us to understand is that we have not become children of God because we have taken the initiative of choosing God, but rather since God made us children, we have now been, able, we have now been enabled to believe Because, in order to understand this properly, we always have to read verses in light of what the broader text of Scripture says. And John himself has much to say about this topic, particularly if you want to read it on your own time, in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. But here's what he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Listen closely to the language that John uses but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." That in other words, God was the initiating actor in your salvation that it was God himself who began the work in you. That the new birth that we experience is not brought about by our own will, but rather by the will of God. In other words, salvation is something initiated by God and affected through his spirit, and it takes place in conjunction with faith in Christ, as one commentator states it. So in other words, you placing your faith in Jesus Christ is something that is always initiated by the work of the Spirit in your life. It is the Spirit who brings and enlivens and enlightens, and we who respond. And this same idea is borne out all through Scripture. We find Paul addressing the same idea in Ephesians chapter 2, where in verse 8 he says, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here is what Paul is saying, if you were to look at that text closely, what he's saying is that the means of your salvation is something that was given to you, provided to you, by God himself. That even the means to believe, even the faith to believe, is something that God himself has to grant. Because apart from God's intervention... Apart from his salvation, apart from his enlivening work of grace in our life, we have no ability to choose him. There's nothing in our own hearts apart from him that would determine to choose or pursue God. That even the faith to believe in him comes from him. And the reason that this is important is that if you believe that your salvation started with something you did then by necessity you are in a position to lose your salvation based on something you do. To To paraphrase it another way, to reference something Dave said weeks ago, if you earned your salvation, even just by the act of believing, then necessarily you could unearn your salvation. But John and the other writers of the New Testament are going to say in no uncertain terms that those who are in Christ have eternal security in him, that they are firmly rooted and grounded in the salvation given by Christ alone, and that nothing but nothing can strip it from them. And the whole reason John is writing here is to give you absolute confidence in the salvation you've been given. And so the reminder that our salvation was initiated by God gives us assurance that it is him and not us who will finish that work in us. It's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That your salvation, the work that he's done in your life, the transformation that he's in the process of bringing, the rescue that he has already brought is something that he did and that he alone can carry through. And so John said in the opening salvo of chapter five, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, past tense, born of God. And as a result, says John, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, this is the idea that we've been talking about at length for the past several weeks, but I wanna talk about it from a slightly different angle this morning, which is that there is a supernatural love that marks the life of the believer. And I say supernatural only in the sense that it is a love that is unique and unexpected in the human experience. It is a love that marks the life of the Christian that outside of Christ you cannot express and you cannot demonstrate. So to try to put this in perspective, I heard a social commentator um, speaking about this idea this week and he was making the argument that much of the dysfunction and the division that we see in our country and all around us culturally can be explained by a breakdown in community that ultimately what people are after is a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, a sense of being loved, a sense of affirmation. And so people look for that affirmation and they look for that identity and they look for that security through all sorts of means in the culture around us. That as people's identity has moved further and further away from the reality of a true and loving God, They have necessarily had to look for their identity, belonging, and meaning in something else. So people try to find their community and their identity through through their politics, or through their activism, or through their good works, or through their sexuality. And they have turned, by necessity, each of those things into pseudo-religions of their own. That some people view their politics as an expression of religious devotion that some people view the expression of their sexuality as a religious component of their life, that some people view their, their love of other people to the extent that they even understand what that means as the means of their ultimate salvation. Maybe not in the biblical sense of what that word means, but in the sense of living for something greater than themselves. Because ultimately what people are after is something that can only find its true expression through faith in Jesus Christ. And within the body of Christ, according to John, we find ourselves loving people with whom we have sometimes very little in common. We are made up of people of different ages and different backgrounds and different experiences and different interests. And yet, we are bound together by something that is infinitely greater than any one of those things. There's a reason that the Bible so often uses the language of family to define and to describe the church. That ideally, your love of, you love your family, rather, despite your individual differences. Why? Because you share blood. There's something unique about the bond of family. What's the old line? You get to choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your family. And sometimes we wish we could swap those. But the reason that we love our family, at least ideally in most settings, is because there is a blood bond. There is a sense of identity, a sense of rootedness, a sense of belonging, a sense of acceptance that no matter who else rejects me in my life, at least these people will accept me on some level. And certainly that's not the case for everybody, but at least ideally it is. But in a spiritual sense, the same thing is true of the family of God that we share a common bloodline through Jesus. So that not only within a local church body, but even across denominational lines and even across the boundaries of our geographic spaces, we love all those who love the Father. So how do we know then that we love the children of God? And this has been one of the underlying questions that that should come into our minds as we read this text, because what John has spent a lot of time discussing to this point is that your love for God finds its expression, at least in part, in loving other people. That one of the ways you can know that you actually love God is if you love others who are, who are of God. And so here he's going to give us an answer, though it will be unsatisfactory to many of us. Let's see what he says in verse two. By this, we know that we love the children of God, When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, this is interesting because you might notice that every other time John has addressed this idea, he said that the way that you know that you love God is if you love those who belong to God. And now he says the way that you know that you are properly loving others is if you love God. And that is quite literally the definition of circular reasoning. It's this whole idea that we keep coming back to. The reason it's confusing is because of the way that it's written, but it's written purposefully and intentionally. This is that spiral of love that we've talked about that kind of runs its way through the book of 1 John. He keeps coming back to this idea. And what John is saying, at least according to one commentator, is that one cannot love God and keep his commands without loving the children of God, And one cannot love the children of God without loving God and keeping his commands. And so immediately the question that should come to mind is, well, wait a minute then. The only objective thing that I can actually look at is what are these commands that I'm supposed to be obeying? Particularly if you're a list maker and a rule follower and a box checker. And so you're saying, give me the thing by which I can know if I'm actually doing this. And he says, here's how you can know. You obey the commands. And immediately, much as we talked about in chapter four, our mind begins to spin because we think of all of the ways that we don't obey the commands of God. And we think about all of the ways that we fail and all of the ways that we struggle and the myriad of struggles that we have in our life, the temptations with sin that we give into. And so we go, well, wait a minute. If the if the whole way that I love God is through obeying commands, and if the way that I obey God is by loving other people, and if the way that I know I'm loving other people is by loving God and obeying commands, then I have no hope because I don't obey the commands. And so we have to remember what that command is that John is talking about because he goes so far as to say that the commands of God are not burdensome. Which is opposite of what many of our natural presumptions would be. We find commands to be burdensome, to be heavy, to be difficult. So how in the world can this command not be a burdensome one? And so in order to discover the answer, we have to look back at 1 John chapter 4, verse 23, where John explicitly tells us what that command is. And here's what he says. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. You want to know what the big command is? that God has for your life. The command that actually demonstrates whether or not you know him. To the extent that we are given that command in scripture, it is probably given most explicitly in chapter four, verse 23. And the command, according to John, is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is not burdensome the burden was perfectly carried by Christ already. Because if the expectation of your ability to show your love for God was based on your ability to obey every command, you would have no hope at all. And if you wanna see that displayed in scripture, all you have to do is read through the Psalms where David, a man who is called, a man after God's own heart, says in one breath, God, I follow all your commands, and I obey every single instruction you've given, and I listen to everything you say, and in the very next chapter turns around and says, my heart is full of wickedness, and I never do the right thing, and I fail constantly, and that bipolar expression of the human experience that David gives us in the Psalms is consistent with every one of our lives where we go, I know that God gives me all kinds of commands, but I have no ability to obey them on my own. And Jesus' answer is, the big command is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The command that we are to obey, by which we are assured that we love others, is to believe in Jesus Christ, and to believe in Jesus Christ naturally expresses itself in showing love for others. So how does this actually work practically? Because to this point, this all sounds so ethereal and so circular that it's hard to make heads or tails of it. Well, what it means is that when I'm struggling to love other Christians, what I need more than anything is to be pointed to the love of Jesus Christ. And when I'm reminded of the love of Jesus Christ, I am then enabled to obey his command to love others. And the problem is we tend to think that it can't be that simple. We look at our own frustrations and our own anger, our own short-temperedness. We think about how poorly we respond to our kids when they're acting out. We think about that tiff we've had with a neighbor or a coworker. We think about the difficult relationship we have with our parents or our friends. And so we hear this instruction to love one another. And so we say, okay, all right, I'm really going to try now. I'm really going to focus and I'm going to love each other more. And when I get angry, I'm going to count to 10 and I'm going to write a letter and tear it up and I'm going to do all of these things in order to get through the anger and the frustration that I feel in a moment so that I can actually love other people the way that I'm supposed to love them. And we're able to do that for a few days until we're not able to do it anymore. And we lose our temper and we say something we shouldn't say. And we choose apathy over compassion. And we find ourselves living again with guilt and shame for having failed yet again. And all of a sudden, the assurance that we felt when we were doing okay is gone. Why? Because your assurance was in you. As we talked about last week, you were looking for something internally that can only be provided for you externally. That the only assurance you really have is in what Jesus Christ has and will do for you. See, if I try to love others without remembering the love of Christ, I'll end up loving them out of my own strength, which always leads to burnout and apathy. Always. Why? Because I am trying to fuel a supernatural love and a supernatural call with my own means and strength. And it will never be enough. And it is only when I am reminded of the love of Christ that I can begin to love others properly. Look what he says then in verse four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Now, when he writes this, he's not talking about a change in attitude that tells you you can do it, that you can overcome all of your problems if you just put your focus into it. No, he has a very specific application when he uses this word, world. The world that he talks about here, as we have talked about previously, references a value system, a series of priorities that mark those who don't know Jesus, that people who don't know Christ inevitably have to live for pleasure or money or distraction or comfort or power. They have to live for something that feels tangible to them. And of course, the destructive element is that once they achieve it, to whatever extent they have, they realize that it's actually not that fulfilling at all. And here's why this matters in this context. These Gnostics, the self-proclaimed Gnostic Christians, who actually were not Christians, claimed that it was their faith, their spiritual experience, their extra insight that these Christians were lacking. And they claimed that the spiritual knowledge meant that their sin which primarily demonstrated itself in all kinds of immorality and promiscuity, they claimed that their special spiritual insight meant that their sin wasn't actually sinful because it was only physical sin and the physical body didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was the spirit. But John here is pointing out that their lack of faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah was directly correlated to their slavery to the world system of values. By denying the fact that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ and Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, they were abandoning any freedom that the gospel had promised and instead running back to the slavery of the world. And so now John is telling these Christians, if you want to understand how it is that you can actually overcome the world, that you can actually overcome the power of the world's system of priorities and no longer be bound up by it, enslaved to it. The only way you can do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And John wants us to see that we're no longer bound by that system because we've been born again. That at the moment of your salvation, as Jesus discussed in his conversation with Nicodemus, that something spiritual happens that is that is remarkable. That the first time you were born into this world, you were born spiritually dead. The literal idea of this is that you were stillborn spiritually. And that language is striking, and it ought to be. Because what it means is that from the very moment that you came into existence, you were in utter rebellion and rejection of God. That you had no ability to choose right. You had no ability to choose good. You had no ability to choose him. That you were utterly spiritually dead. And so Jesus says, what you needed more than anything was to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how in the world can I do that? Can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, no, the birth I'm talking about is something that happens spiritually that you need new spiritual life. And the only way that that could come about is through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on the cross for you, and his resurrection from the dead, which made it possible for you to have new life. And so now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you've been born into a whole new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that we're to live for spiritual riches rather than earthly material goods, that we live by spiritual power rather than seeking earthly power, and that victory is only found by faith in Jesus as the Messiah. There's a fascinating conversation that happens in John chapter 16, the Gospel of John chapter 16, where Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples, and he says this beginning in verse 26. He says, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 31, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, listen to this, I Have overcome the world. And so when John writes to believers in 1 John chapter 5 and says, There is a faith that overcomes the world, he is referencing the exact quote of Jesus. It is undoubted that as John is penning these words, he is thinking about what Jesus himself had said to him that day which was in essence, John, there's going to come a moment where you experience unbelievable tribulation and hardship. You're going to go out from here and you're going to be away from me, but I'm not going to be alone because I have the Father. And since you have believed in me, It's a demonstration of the fact that my father personally loves you, that he delights in you, that he cares for you, that he hasn't forgotten you, that he's not going to abandon you. And in me and what I'm about to do on the cross, you can be assured that I have already overcome the world. And John was going to need that reassurance. Because here's what we know about how John's life ended. John, at least according to historical tradition, is the only of the apostles who was not martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ, meaning he didn't die specifically at the hands of oppressors because of his faith in Jesus. But what did happen is that he was arrested, and as a punishment for his faith, he was supposed to be boiled alive until he was dead. And somehow, miraculously, by the hand of God, being boiled alive, did not kill John. And his persecutors were so terrified at the notion that this man had made it through this punishment that they shipped him off and exiled him for the rest of his life. And in the middle of his exile, you can be assured that these same words of Jesus were ringing in his mind. That when you pray to God, it's not as if God only hears because Jesus is asking, but, but in addition to that, that God himself loves you, John. That even when you are the most alone, exiled from everything and everyone, you are still not alone because I'm with you. And in the truest sense, when you have faith in the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf, you are reminded that God is with you and hears you, not as a begrudging concession to the request of Jesus, as Jesus himself clarifies in John 16, but because the Father loves you. That in other words, God is not sitting in heaven hearing your prayers and hearing your cries and going, I guess I have to listen to this person too because Jesus died for them. No, he's saying, I sent my son to die for them because I loved them so much. That God delights in you, according to Psalm 18 and Psalm 147. That he'll never leave you or forsake you. So that when you're in the moment of trial or difficulty, even to the point of persecution, you can have the same confidence that Jesus, ha- that Jesus had as he suffered that the Father is with you, that everything you need in this life, you already have in God. So I want to leave you this morning with this great quote from the theologian Alexander McLaren, who said this. Speaking of this text, McLaren said, so if we join ourselves to him by faith and bring into our daily life in all its ignoble effort In all its little duties, in all its wearisome monotonies, in all its triviality, the thought, the illuminating thought, the ennobling thought of the victorious Christ, our companion and our friend, in this sign, we shall conquer. They that keep hold of his hand see over the world and all its falseness and fleetingness. They that trust in Jesus are more than conquerors by the might of his victory. That the reason faith overcomes the power of this world is not because of the amount or the significance or the depth of your faith, but rather the object of your faith, the person Jesus Christ, who once and for all overcame this world. That is the confidence we have in our salvation and the empowerment we have to love God and one another. So be confident in what Jesus has done for you, brother and sister, and be encouraged and blessed that he loves you that much. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for passages that stretch our minds and stretch our understanding passages that challenge our presuppositions and our assumptions, and God, I pray that you would not allow the limit of what this text does to, to be a stretching of us intellectually, but rather, God, that we would recognize that there is something supernatural going on in this text, that because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf and because of the spirit that he sends to indwell those who know him, we have an absolute confidence that when we cry out in prayer, we are heard from you. That yes, the Holy Spirit cries on our behalf with groans that cannot be uttered. And that yes, Jesus Christ intercedes for us at the right hand of the throne of God. But that the causal effect of all of that was that the Father loved us so much and so deeply that he sent his Son to die for us. To become a sacrifice for us to make us part of his family. So God, for all those who know this, would you remind them of the love that you have for them so that they can show love for you and for one another? And God, for those who don't know this, would you hound their hearts with your pursuing love, with your radical grace, calling them to yourself in a way that only you can do And God, we trust that you'll do in our hearts what you alone are able to do. And it's in your name we pray, amen.